You may be seated. All right. We have, since the beginning of the year, been going through the, the subject area, if you would, hating to use that term, but knowing God. Knowing God. And knowing God is probably the, the, the most critical um, subject that we could ever go through. And Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, that this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so knowing God is, is eternally critical to, um, to your existence. The fact is that every individual on the face of the earth will exist eternally. The difference will be where they will live, where they will exist eternally. Jesus said then, to have eternal life, to be in the presence of God, that that was going to come through knowing Him, knowing the Father, knowing God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, as we've gone through then, this um, of knowing God, the quest of knowing God, we have, we have considered the, exclusive, the existence and exclusiveness of God. We have considered the composition of God, that is the fact is that God exists and that He is the only God. The composition of God, that He is three and yet He is one. And then finally, we have begun to consider the attributes of God, looking at his natural attributes, his vocational attributes, the fact that he's the creator, that he's the judge, that he's the savior. And as well, we have begun looking at the moral attributes of God. Now, as we've gone through this process, we have used a, a motif, if you would, an illustration um, of the ocean. And that is that knowing God is like going to the ocean. And that many of us have, have lived in, in Omaha or someplace inland, and only have known the, the ocean because of looking at Wikipedia or some other kind of a encyclopedia type thing. We've read about it. We've studied it. Um, we've learned about it in a school. You know, we can tell you the salt content of the ocean. We can, we can tell you some of the formations. We can tell you some of the things that live inside the ocean. But you've never been to the ocean. There's a difference between knowing a lot about the ocean and actually having been to the ocean. And then there are some who have gone to the ocean, and like that starfish there, they've only ever been on the beach. And so some of us go to the, the, the ocean, and we kind of start making the sand castles, and we kind of do the, the, you know, getting the tan kind of thing, and while everybody else is out there playing in the water, and they're enjoying the water, we're just kind of sitting out on the, on the beach. And so we have this proximity thing. You know, we go to church. You know, there's a lot of people out there. They know a lot about God, but they're not doing And then there's some who just kind of go to the beach. They kind of get in the proximity of people who know God. And, they, and they're very content with that. You know, it's kind of fun to be, you know, at the beach making sandcastles. But you know what? Going in the ocean is a whole lot better than just going and sitting on the beach. And so for some... For many in our world, actually, the majority of our world, they've never been in the ocean. They've never experienced God. We talked about then that knowing God concept there is not just all these facts, factoids about God. And this is the, the thing that we want to be concerned about is that we're not just learning factoids about God. We're not just learning new data points about God. There's a lot of people who know a lot of data about God, but they don't know God. And so when Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, he used the Greek word gnosko, which means an intimate relational knowledge. He didn't use the word oida, or edo, 
which means a factual knowledge. And so we discussed the fact that, again, that there are people who factually know about the ocean, but they don't intimately know about the ocean. And so what Christ calls us to do is to intimately know God, to know him relationally. God is not about us having a religion, but having a relationship. And so as we go through these pieces of information, if you would, about God, it's not just to, to, to build a bigger database, but rather to come to know him in a more intimate way. And so as we've gone through these moral attributes, we have discussed his holiness, the holiness of God. We've discussed the love of God. Over the last few weeks, we discussed the faithfulness of God. Last week, we took a, a quick break, and we talked about God as our Father. The fact that God, in that relationship, allows us to know him as Abba, Father. Today, I want to begin to look at the new moral attribute of the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God and the justice of God are intertwined. And so we will be talking about both of those, but predominantly under the concept of righteousness. And so today, we want to look at the, the righteousness of God proper, and then next week, we'll look at this, in the second part, we'll look at its application to our lives. But right now, for, for now, what is righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous or to have righteousness? Well, righteousness is adhering to moral or virtuous principles. Now, the question that you, 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 you need to have, especially in, in our culture today, and that is, who's the determiner of moral principles? Because there's no what today? There's no absolute truth. Now, there is absolute truth. But the world will tell us what? Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. It's right for me, but it may not be right for you, but it's right for me. Well, the fact is, though, that there is one who is the determiner of moral principles, and that person is God. God is the determiner of all righteousness. He is the determiner of all moral or virtuous principles. Therefore, true righteousness is that which is right according to God's standards. Okay? So, you ask the question, what is righteousness then? Bring it simply down. Righteousness is that which is right according to God. Does that make sense? If God says it's right, then it's righteous. If God says it's not right, then it's, it's unrighteous. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's kind of like sin. What's sin? Sin is disobeying God. I mean, it really boils it rolls down there. God said, don't do that, and I do it. I disobey God, therefore it's sin. God said, don't do that, and I do do it, therefore I've sinned. Well, true righteousness is that which is right according to God's standards. Now, again, right with it is the word justice. Well, justice, dictionary definitions here, are an administration of law or a righteous judgment. See how those things blend together here? It's judging something righteously. Okay. And now, again, in our culture, that, that is starting to blur a little bit here, right? Because now... Our Supreme Court, now we're just going to get it outside the local courts for a moment. Let's go big. Let's go global here, right? Let's go Supreme Court. Our Supreme Court is now using a different set of standards today than they did even 40 years ago. Does anybody know what this new standard is that's being brought into to our Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of the land today? International law. Not just European standards. International law. International law. See, there is what's called out there the, the UN. Convention of the Child, or Rights of the Child, okay? We have not ratified it as a nation. Madeleine Albright signed it back during the days of President Clinton. But our Congress has never ratified it. So it is not law in our land right now. 
However, check me out on this one, okay, because I do a lot of research, okay? The, U the United States Supreme Court is already using it as um, precedent, precedent law. They are already using that convention as, as international precedent for this country. It, even though we, as our Congress, understand we have that balance of powers, right? Okay? So this is not a political message, but this is just, this is, you know, what do you call it, illustration here. We have this balance of powers, but we're not using the balance of powers, but rather we've gone past that, and we already, sorry, we've already used it. So, so this, this thing here, this righteous judgment, now the righteous judgment, according to our law of the land, that is being determined now is different than the righteous judgment that would have been determined 40 years ago. Why? Because truth is relative. It's flexible. Right. However, we know that just as true righteousness is that which is according to God's standards, true justice is that which is enacted according to the righteous principles of God's laws. And God's laws, God's word, doesn't change. Just as we discussed this when we were going through some of the natural attributes of God and talking about the existence of God and talking about God as the creator in that vocational attributes, that the world continually changes the, the, the what? The, the history and the, the dating of the universe. You know? Is it, is it thousands? Is it millions? Is it billions? Maybe it's trillions years old. But God's word has never changed. God's word has never changed. It's always declared that God created the earth in six 24-hour periods. And if you do a chronology, it's approximately 6,000 years ago. And you know what? God has never put out a revision. Remember, we talked about that. God's, God's never put out a, a, you know, a 2.1. You know? you know, the Bible, you know, version 2000.1. .1, you know, because it's, it's changed so much over the years because man has changed, and so therefore God's got to change his, his standards to, to be able to, to, to amalgamate with man. It doesn't happen that way. How many times I have dealt with people over the course of years who would like to tell me that that's just cultural. That was just cultural. You know, that doesn't apply to me today because that was just for Israel. That was just for the Corinthians. That was just for the Ephesians. That was just for the Philippians. And my question always goes back to then, then, then why do you even read it? Because the whole thing's what? Cultural. It doesn't apply to you at all. Because it was all written at least 2,000 years ago. But God's word doesn't change. His righteous standards have never changed. They're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just as he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is because... It's not just his laws that are right or righteous, but they're righteous because he is righteous. Does that make sense? Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 18 to 23. A lot of verses to go to today. Okay, Isaiah 45, beginning at verse 18. For thus saith Yahweh, thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens, who was God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. That's one of my favorite verses, by the way. That's, I got a lot of favorite verses, but that's an awesome thing. God's purpose. I mean, he didn't just kind of 
arbitrarily, you know, create the world. I mean, we're talking about evolution, you know? I mean, evolution just kind of happens, right? God says what? No, man. I created it. I created it with a purpose. I, I established it. And I created it so that it would be inhabited. Yeah, I love it. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And there is what? There's no one else. There's none other. I have spoken. I have not spoken. I'm sorry. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. That goes, gets rid of a lot of the uh, predestination type stuff too. I believe in that election. But some of this ultra predestination stuff is kind of um, not so. Anyways, I seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from the ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Why? For I am God, and there is none other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that to me every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess, or take an oath. And then we know from Philippians chapter 2 that Paul finishes it off and says what? That Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And so, kind of a fun thing there. Anyways, but Yahweh says, listen, I am the only God. I'm the one who created everything. So I'm, I am the one who's in charge of all this. And I am a what? I'm a righteous God. I'm a righteous God. Okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 3-4. Don't turn there because we're going to come back to Isaiah. But just, you can read it up here. It says, For I proclaim the name of Yahweh. I ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. All his ways are justice. And what was justice? Good. That which is an act according to the righteous principles of God. Okay? So all his ways are justice. He's a God of truth, and he's without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, so think about this. If God is God, and he is, yes, it's kind of a no-brainer. And he's the creator. He's, the, he's the, the potter. We're the clay. If God said something is right, then what? It's right. Why do we declare that, that, that um, murder is wrong? Because God said so. Now, I want, I, want, I want you to struggle here for a moment. I want you to struggle with this for a moment. What if it said in the Bible, thou shalt murder? Now, I know it doesn't say that. Okay, I'm, I'm causing your brain to spin for a loop here for a moment. But what if, what if it said, a part of the, the ten words of the covenant, the ten commandments, instead of saying, thou shalt not commit murder, it said, thou shalt murder. You should be afraid to make a Texan mad. That's exactly right. Because murder, murder, according to the righteous standards of God, would be what? Would be not just legal, it would be right. It would be virtuous. It would be righteous. Now, this is what I'm saying. This is going to cause your brain to, okay? I mean, I'm thankful that we have the God, that, that God is the God that he is. Does that make sense? Because God is the one who's the determiner of that which is. Because you've got to ask yourself the question. Okay? And again, cause your brain to go. Okay? Which came first, righteousness or God? Yes. That's exactly right. Okay? 
But God is God. And so therefore, God is the one who is the determiner of what? Of righteousness in all things. Okay? And so that, that's kind of hard for us to, we just kind of accept things the way they are, and this is the way it is. But the fact is then that murder is wrong because God said murder is wrong. Not because man determined when the United States was formed that murder was wrong. Even if then I live in a land that says murder is right, does it make murder right? No, murder is still wrong. Why? Because it's according to God's laws. Okay? Isaiah 11. Turn back to Isaiah 11. Because we see that Yahweh, Yahweh is the one who is righteous. Yahweh is the one whose, whose words are, are true and, and, and just. But Yahweh continues on um, in the, as I kind of blended earlier with Isaiah 45, that um, Yahweh is going to come to the earth again, and he already has, um, and he will come again to reign. And who is that? Jesus. Okay? And we read in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of Yahweh and the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Who is being talked about here? Well, clearly it's, it's the Messiah. Okay, It's the one who's going to come, who's going to reign over the kingdom of Israel in the final days. Okay, We know that individual to be Jesus. That's exactly right. Okay. And so let's pick this up in the New Testament with Matthew 27. Okay, there are other verses on your sermon note sheets you can look at and you can, can do some further study. That's why they're there. Okay, They're not just there because I wanted to fill the, the white space. But Matthew 27, um, verse 24 and 25, this is um, Pontius Pilate speaking. And, and, and Pilate has, has Jesus in front of him, right? And he's... And he's and he's putting them through judgment, if you would, secular judgment, worldly judgment. And so when Pilate, we're told in verse 24, it says, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all against the crowds, okay, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. What did, what did, what did Pilate find out about this individual? He was righteous. He couldn't find anything what? Wrong in him at all. He says, I'm innocent of this just man, of this just person. You see to it. And in verse 25 is probably one of the most astounding verses. And all the people answered and said, His blood pee upon us and our children. We'll take the guilt upon ourselves. I mean, in, to understand the fullness of that, we'll, we'll take the guilt of killing who? God. God himself. Our Messiah, the one that we have been waiting thousands of years for, <laughs> saying, wouldn't this be a good time for Messiah to come? And Messiah comes, and we what? And we kill him. And then there's passages in the book of Acts that you can go to later and look at. But in 1 John 2, verse 1, we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Anybody remember? The righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Okay? And so the, the word ones would be in there if you took that Greek word and brought it in, the, the righteous one. 
Okay? So it's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so the point here is that God is continually referred to as the righteous one. He is the just one. So he is the one to whom all righteousness and justice has its origin, has its beginning. And so we continue on then with the definition, with the display of God's righteousness. How does God display then his righteousness to us and for us? Well, first of all, he displays it in, in judgment. In judgment. Turn with me to Psalm 97. That was our, our, our reading this morning. Okay, turn back there. Psalm 97, verse 1 to 6. Psalm 97, 1 to 6, says, Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What do you think that means? What's the throne? That which he sits on. Okay, well, that's good. I mean, ah, good. It's, it's the place of his, of his authority. From where he reigns and from where he rules. And so he says that his rule, his reign, his authority is founded, is established upon righteousness and justice. Okay? Those two things that we're bringing together. So that when God judges, when God brings judgment, it is going to be established in righteousness and justice. Okay? And he goes on in verse 3 a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies around about. So if, if the fire goes out and it, and it burns up his enemies, how is the fire going out? In righteousness and in justice. Do you get it? His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains melt like wax in the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his what? His righteousness, and all the people see his glory. It's amazing. In Romans 1, we're not going to go there right now. It's not on your sheet. You can kind of write this one down because we'll go to it next week as we start talking about people. But in Romans chapter 1, when it talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the, it's the power of God unto salvation, right? He goes on and then talks from there about the righteousness of God and talks about the importance of the righteousness of God because that all men on the earth have had the privilege to know God and not just know God, but know his righteousness and they have suppressed his righteousness. They have suppressed the righteousness of God. In other words, they knew what was right and what was wrong. They knew the standards of God. But knowing the standards of God, they have suppressed them. Why? Because they chose to because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And so God says, Romans chapter 1, again, we'll talk about this next week okay, in more detail. God says, fine, I'm going to hand you over to your own lasciviousness. You want to be your own God. You want to worship the things of your own hand. You go ahead and do that. You be God. And so God says, you handle it. And he lets them go. And so, man continues on a path of decadence. The ultimate form of decadence is turning away from the created order of God so that man exchanges the use of a woman for, the, for a man, for another man, and that woman exchanges the use of a man for another woman. We call that what? Homosexuality. And so, so God says in his word, in the Psalms here, even the heavens declare his righteousness, and the people see his glory. So his judgment is based upon the foundation of righteousness and justice. In Nehemiah chapter 9, turn there with me. Nehemiah 9, verses 32 to 35. 
Nehemiah 9, 32-35 says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people, from the days of the king of Assyria unto this day. Look what he says. He says, God, take note, please, of, of all the trouble that we've gone through here, right? But then he stops and he comes back because he recognizes why the troubles come upon them. Okay? However, verse 33, however, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Do you get it? God, take note of all this stuff, that's, I mean, all this misfortune, if you would, that has come upon us. But <clears throat> I recognize the fact that all this quote-unquote misfortune has come upon us. Why? Because we have dealt wickedly. We have done wickedness. We have rebelled against you. We have sinned. And you have righteously judged us. You have judged us with your justice. You are just in your dealings. And so you have allowed this to come into our life. Now, it doesn't, no, no, what he says, he doesn't necessarily say God caused it. But God allowed it. Okay, both of those things come up, come up be. Because we know that God had already declared that he was going to bring judgment upon Israel. Okay? But some of the times when God is bringing judgment upon, he's taking his hand of protection off. Do you get it? And so therefore the Assyrians can come in and do their destruction because God's not coming in and protecting them. In the days of Hezekiah, did the Assyrians come against Judah? In the days of Hezekiah. Yes, they did. They did. Remember they had a siege about Jerusalem. And, and, and Rabshakeh came to him and, and he said, listen, you guys, don't listen to Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah is trying to tell you to serve the Lord, but don't listen to him. Has anybody been able to st- stop um, Tiglath-Pileser? Has anybody been able to stop the gods of Assyria? No, no, there's no other gods. I mean, your, your god's not going to be able to do what any other god was able to do. In fact, you might as well give it up now, you know. And so Hezekiah takes the, the letter from, from Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser, one of, the, one of the Assyrian rulers, Anyways, and he takes it into to Yahweh. He takes it into God before God and he lays it out before God and says, God, look what this guy is saying. I know it's not about me. It's all about you. And God says what? You're right. It's all about me. And so, so don't sweat it here. Because he's not going to come in. He will leave in the same way he came. Right? And so what do we know about um, when the Assyrian army came against Jerusalem. And this, this, is, this is, well, twice. What happened the first time? The first time, no. They, they thought they heard the Ethiopians or the Egyptians coming, and they fled, remember? And that's when the, the, the lepers found all the food. But the second time they came is when the plague came, when the angel of death came, and he killed 180,000 of them. Could you imagine that? And so, what do we know then? Why couldn't why didn't the Assyrians ever breach the walls of Jerusalem? Because God fought for them. Because God protected them. Why then did the Babylonians breach the walls of Jerusalem? Because God allowed it. Because God took his hand off. Because of the wickedness of the people. And that's what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah recognizes the fact that, that it's because of their... And, and that God was just in allowing it to happen. Verse 34 Neither our kings, nor our princes, or our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and testimonies, which 
with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in many good things that you have gave, given them, or in the large and rich land which you have set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Again, we'll talk about this concept more next week. But make the application to us. As we're talking about God's justice, can you, can you make the application to the church? And what God has done for us? And what are we doing? I'm not going to talk about Family Bible Church, but it does apply to Family Bible Church. But the church of Augusta, the church of the United States, and even more than the global church of, of Jesus Christ, what are we doing with what he has given to us? Psalm 9, verses 7 to 8 says, But Yahweh shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Now this should get your attention. Before we get into this next subject, our final subject for this morning, apart from Christ, okay, and I know 2020 is hindsight here, and you're all sitting here saying about, but I know about the blood of Jesus. Apart from the blood of Jesus, you should be in fear right now, based upon all this. Because God judges righteously according to his righteous standards, which are according to his righteous laws. And we know from James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you obey the whole law and yet you offend at one point, you're what? You're guilty of it all. And so we see then the display of God's righteousness in salvation. Psalm 71, verses 15 and 19 says, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of Lord of the Lord God, the sovereign Yahweh. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed. Some of you can't say that yet. Some of you can. Okay? I'm, I'm in, I, I have this one up there because I can say this now, right? Now also when I'm old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things. O God, who is like you? Woven integrally into the concept of salvation. Not just New Testament, but even Old Covenant. is the concept of God's righteousness. Because of God's righteousness, because of his rightness, and our failureness, our unrightness, if you would, our unrighteousness, we need help in the concept of salvation. David declares, and it comes from Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. What's he saying? Oh God, forgive me. Don't judge me according to your righteous standards. Now, this is interesting because if you read some of the other Psalms of David, he's always continually declaring what? Judge me according to my righteousness, oh God. But now all of a sudden he's saying, wait a second, God, don't, don't judge me here according to my righteousness. Rather what? Forgive me. Have mercy upon me according to your chesed, your, loving, your faithful loving kindness to the objects of your covenant. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And what is sin? 
disobeying God. And so, therefore, let's bring in the concept that we're talking about today. It is not conforming ourselves to the righteous standards of God. Okay? I have sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Here's David. And we read the, the little uh, pre, preamble there, right? When, when did David write it? After he had gone into Bathsheba. Yeah, Adder. I don't know what happened to the F there. Anyways, but after he had gone into Bathsheba, and Nathan points him out and says, you're the man, right? And so now all of a sudden he realizes his guilt is found out according to the law, according to God's righteous standards, that which David would have enacted, would have enforced upon others in his land, David deserved to be killed by stoning. He went into another man's wife. And not only did he go into another man's wife, and that was, enough, that was, was all he needed to do to be stoned, but then he killed the husband. So now he's guilty of murder. I mean, that's a double death penalty here. Double life sentence. And David goes before God and says what? Forgive me. I'm what? I'm guilty. I'm found out, and I'm guilty. But God, I'm pleading on your mercy. I'm pleading on your grace. But I know that regardless of the decision you make right now, your decision your judgment will be just. Because you are the righteous God. And the decisions that you make will be righteous. How many of you go before God when you've sinned and declare to Him? I understand we have 1 John 1 9. You know, confess your sin before God, and He'll be faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's fine. He can positionally cleanse you. But really what you want God to do is what? Take away the bad stuff that goes with it. Take, take away the practical spanking. God, it's not that I want our relationship back squared away here. It's just that I don't want you to hold me accountable for what I've just done. I don't want the bad things to go with it. David says, I, I, I want to be forgiven. Nevertheless, I know that you're going to be found blameless when you judge. So, in this concept of salvation, then, there has to be a standard of righteousness. We've already discussed what that standard of righteousness was, right? That's what? That's God's righteous law. Turn with me to the book of Romans. In fact, before you go to Romans, stop by the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Now, again, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, where people take the, um, the Sermon on the Mount of Christ, and they say it doesn't apply to us because it's kingdom theology. It, so it only applies to the millennium. It, it doesn't apply to us today. And, and I go, I, I, don't, I really don't get it. Jesus is God on the earth, and his kingdom reigns in my heart. And so, therefore, if he is reigning in my heart, therefore, his teachings apply to me today. But in Matthew 5, verse 20, we read Jesus in this context of, of, of these standards that he's putting out says, For I say unto you, 
then unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now stop for a moment before we go into the book of Romans. You can start turning there if you want to. What do you think the people understood when Jesus said that? You're not getting there. Why? The Pharisees were the most righteous that there were. I mean, they're the, they're the ones who, who are honoring the law. In fact, they're honoring it so much, they're, they're trying to make sure that the jots and tittles that they're not going to do anything wrong. And so Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than those righteous guys, you're not going to get to heaven. And so for all the, 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 the people like you and me sitting there, you know, the ones who have struggled with sin and yada, 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 and, and understand that he calls those, those guys whitewashed sepulchers later. But the ones of us who knew we're sinners, right, we're sitting there and we're saying what? It, it's, we're done. We're toast. It's, it's, it's a done deal. Well, if that's bad enough, again, back in the book of Romans, chapter 2. Look at Romans 2, beginning of verse 11. For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're in the law or you're out of the law. If you've sinned within the law or out of the law, you're what? You're judged. You're guilty. Okay. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things that are in the law, these, although they not having the law, are a law to themselves. And you say, okay, well, that's a bunch of jargon. What does that say? That says that even when the United States forms a code of law that includes even the, the things of God's law, they recognize the fact what? That God's law is, is, is right. I mean, there is within man, just in man, because, because man has been made in the image and likeness of God, that man understands the moral, action, the moral righteousness of God. They have within them this, 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 this understanding of what moral righteousness is all about. And so even if they're not going to overtly follow the, the God of the Bible, they come up with these laws that are what? Consistent with his righteousness. And so they make a law to themselves, but their law unto themselves just confirms the fact that God is righteous. And so when you have your own code of standard of what is right and what is wrong, and you can't even live to your own standard, do you know what you prove? You're really vile. Because usually your standard is what? Lower than God's standards. And you know what? This is exactly what brought me to Jesus Christ. For 23 years, I went to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. I, I mean, probably within two hands, you can count how many times I missed. Okay? I mean, I know it's the stories of, you know, when I was a little guy. I mean, we would walk to church in the snow. We really would. I mean, it's just Pittsburgh, man. You know, life doesn't stop because of snow. And um, we'd walk to church. And so I was there every Sunday. I, I was active in the youth group. I helped my dad with the treasurer's work. I was an usher. I was an acolyte. I mean, I, 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 I. And I had all my own righteous standards. But then when I got outside of my mom and dad's house and I could live the way I wanted to live, my righteous standards clearly weren't the same as God's righteous standards. And then I realized I couldn't even live to my own righteous standards. Now we've got a real problem. And I remember an individual asking me if I've read God's Word. And I said, well, you know, yeah, I've read portions." He said, you've read the whole thing. I said, well, I haven't read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. So I read, I, I promised I'd read it. And when I gave my word, I gave my word. So I, I read it. 
And I remember reading this. If I couldn't live to my own law, my own standard, how could I ever live to God's standards? Do you get it? And so, having a law to ourselves, we find out that we are what? Condemned. Drop down to chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be what? Stopped. And that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be what? Justified or found righteous in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Drop down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory or the reputation of God. And God's reputation is righteousness. Jesus said we need to be perfect even as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Not a one of you here today, including me, will ever have attained the righteousness of God. Again, James 2.10 says, if you obey the whole law and yet you offend at one point, you're guilty of it all. You are unrighteous. Only God is the only, God is the only one who has perfect righteousness. And so, in this standard of righteousness, we find ourselves all what? Guilty. We're all condemned. But, fortunately, praise God, not just fortunately, I mean, it sounds like it's, like it's just happened to be, but according to God's grace, according to God's sovereignty, according to God's blessings, that God chose to impute righteousness to us. And that imputation of righteousness comes, first of all, by faith. By faith. And so, we see... In Romans 3, if you're still there, going back to verse 19. Now let's read in full this whole verse, okay, because we skipped a bunch in there. So we know that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith, in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now let's go on. Oops, sorry. Stay there for a moment. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. I'm going to just read this to you, okay, for the sake of time. It says, but what things were gained to me, this is Jesus, or Paul speaking, but what things were gained to me those I count a loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And you all know Second Corinthians 5.21, right? For He made Him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might have the righteousness of God. Okay, so what's the whole point from Romans 3 and those other verses tagged in there? 
And that is that in and of myself, I am what? I am guilty and I'm unrighteous. But God has blessed me by taking His righteousness, His perfect righteousness, and setting it on me. The word imputing means to credit to my account. That God takes me, He, declare, he saves me by His grace, and He takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and He applies it to me. He applies it to my account. And now when He looks at Bob's account in the, in the book of life, what does he see? Paid in full, perfect righteousness. Now, there is the, 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 the sanctification side we're going to talk about next week. This is the positional side of salvation. The fact is that in Jesus Christ, I am positionally righteous. Not because I am righteous, but because he is righteous. Do you get it? It's not because you are righteous. And that's why he tells the nation of Israel, and I, again, so many verses you can't share. But he says, listen, when you go into this land and you're thinking to yourself, hey, this is really cool. God has given us the land because of, because of our righteousness. He says, no, it's not because of your own righteousness. It's in spite of you. It's because of what I have done. And it's the same thing for you and I. God didn't set his affection upon you because you were so good. It's in spite of you. Because we're told that, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were at enmity with God, while we were his enemies, God loved us. That's mind-boggling stuff. And not only did he love us, but he died for us. And when he died for us, he took his own righteousness and stuck it on our account and said, you can't do it on your own, but I'm going to pay it. Here it is. Righteousness according to God. But not only is it by faith, it's by God. Because we couldn't do it, on our own. God had to do it. Do you get it? We could not. There is no way that we could ever come up with this imputation of righteousness by ourselves. And so going back to Romans 3, what does it say? How do we get this righteousness given to us? By God. God does it. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That God places the, the, the righteousness upon us. It's all about God and not about me. It's all about God and not about me. And so finally, this evaluation of righteousness. How are we evaluated in our, our ultimate righteousness? It's the, the throne of judgment. The judgment throne. Matthew 13, 49-50, Jesus says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be willing and gnashing of teeth. Does that sound familiar? That sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 20, doesn't it? In Revelation chapter 20, we read about the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, the, the, the dead, small and great, will all stand before the great white throne. And they will be judged out of the books according to their what? Their works. And may I add a little bit to that? To their works of? righteousness to their deeds, whether they be good or evil, whether they be right or unrighteous, whether they be just or unjust. Unjust. And so when they are then judged according to their works, what will happen? What did we just see according to the standard of righteousness? No one will be justified according to their own righteousness, according to their own works, according to their own abilities. No one will be found justified. But 
Only those who will be found written where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. And all those who are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, all those who have not accepted, all those who have not received by faith the righteousness which God has offered will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's consistent throughout. People want to get rid of, a, get rid of hell. You know why they want to get rid of hell? They don't, have to, they don't have to give it account. There's no account. That's right. I can live how I want to live here because it doesn't matter. You know, it's so mind-boggling to me because we deceive ourselves. And so we think if we can theologically get rid of hell, then God has to get rid of hell. Does that make sense? In other words, if, if down here, if we as the, as the clay, we determine this is what God needs to do, that God has to listen to us. But the, one of the things we, we discovered way back in the beginning of the series is God is what? He's sovereign. He doesn't give an account to man. He does what he chooses to do. And so, God has already declared what the, what the, the rules of the game are. Does that make sense? He's declared what righteousness is. He's declared how salvation is attained. And he's also declared then what the consequences of not attaining salvation the way he's declared is. And so, what's your standard of righteousness? Is it the same as God's? That's a good answer. That's out of the mouth of babes. He's honest. I always love, you know, when when someone comes in the office, this is years ago I had someone come in for counseling at a previous church, and they said, Pastor, I'm struggling with sin. I said, praise God. And they, they just looked at me like, huh? I said, I'm glad you're struggling. There's too many people who aren't struggling. <laughs> they're just enjoying it. You know, They don't even know they're doing it. <laughs> praise God you're struggling. What's your standard of righteousness? Let me ask you, what should it be? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you, by faith, accepted the gift of righteousness which God offered you? You know, we always feel like we're the what? We're the special case. I mean, not you, I know. Not, not people here, but it's the people out there. But how many people think they're what? They're the special case. They don't have to do it God's way. Their works of righteousness far surpass their works of iniquity and wickedness. And God says, it doesn't happen that way. When you die, will you be spending eternity with the just or the unjust? Now, if you... Attend here often, you know that I, I don't, I'm not one to issue invitations and, and have you come down the aisle, and I'm not going to have you coming down the aisle today either, okay? It's between you and God. But there are certain messages which God reveals and, and brings to us very clearly the need of salvation in our own wickedness. And I don't want to walk away from those things. And so if you're here today, and this applies positionally to you as far as salvation goes. I challenge you. I'm not asking you to put up your hand. I'm not asking you to come down the aisle. I'm asking you to go to God and to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Recognize the sin that you're in. Recognize your wickedness and ask God to save you. If you know you're his child, but you're living in sin, you're not living according to, to his standard. We'll talk more about that next week, and I hope that doesn't scare you off. But anyways, we'll talk about it more next week, okay? But, if you know you're not walking according to his righteous standards, and you're his child, then that should cause you to have great remorse 
Not worldly sorrow, which causes nothing, but godly remorse, which leads to repentance. And I call upon you to do that. I challenge you to ask God, where according to your standards am I falling short? I think it applies to each of us. Believer, though, if you're walking generally according to his, his righteousness, and his righteousness is being seen in you, then give him the glory and the praise for who he is. For he is the righteous God. He's the one that doesn't change. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing knowing you. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I do pray that if there is any that are here today that don't know you, and Lord, clearly I know that for 23 years I went to church, and I didn't know you. And so I, I, I speak that not as a, a form of my own judgment, but Lord, as a plea to you, knowing the hearts of each individual, that you will draw men to yourself. Lord, that you would be glorified. We know that you are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that you desire all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. And so pray, I pray for that, Lord. I also pray for, for those who are your children, Lord, that you would cause us not to become complacent, um, that we would not become lethargic in our walk with you, but, God, that we would continually be striving to, to glorify you and to emulate your righteousness in this world. Lord, that we would not um, succumb to the relative truth of our, of our culture, but, Lord, that we would hang our hat on your absolute truth and that we would declare the things that are right and declare the things that are wrong, not based upon our own opinions, but based upon what you have declared. God, help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.